Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode number 412. My name is Brando. Got a couple, I should say one guest and one co-host slash guest with me today. Uh, let me first in, in, in say welcome to the Chad Gervich. Am I pronouncing that right? I should have asked you off the air. Yeah, just Chad, plain and simple. All right. No, but Gervich is correct, pronounced late. Okay. Just don't call you Chatty G or anything like that, just Chad? <laughs> okay, so, so Chad... He brought along Janet Gardner, so you're not just sitting here, Janet, by the way. So welcome to you as, uh, uh, to the show as well. Thank you, Janet, for joining us. Of course, from uh, from Vixen, formerly a Vixen, and we're going to talk about her new projects. But Chad is going to be my co-host today, and I am very transparent about how things happen on this podcast, how I get guests. I just like the behind the scenes, how things happen. I think listeners enjoy that as well. So I commented on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, that app that Elon Musk owns. Uh, I commented on a tweet that my friend uh, Greg Rainoff, who has written a couple great Van Halen books, saying that he wants to watch this new documentary on Paramount+. Plus. I want to rock the um, 80s metal dream. And I knew about this documentary, actually, Chad, uh, for a bit, because I'm friendly with Vicki Hamilton, former Guns oh, nice. N' Roses manager, and she was on She's been on uh, two or three times, but recently she was maybe less than a month ago she was on, and before it premiered, so we were always excited, already talking about it and everything. So uh, Greg's like, "I want to see it," and I commented, "I'm like, oh, I, I did see it. I really enjoyed it." And he happens, I guess, tag you within his tweet, and yeah. then and then you reached out to me privately to my email, the AFD Show at Gmail dot com for those who we don't 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 know. And much to my surprise, Chad is a producer of the documentary and is a fan of the podcast. I, I didn't think anybody listened. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Chad. Look, I'm a huge metal fan and, you know, listen to your podcast, obviously, and uh, to a bunch of other metal podcasts. And so I was so excited to see you retweet and comment on Greg's tweet. And so I, I had to reach out immediately and was like, oh, my gosh, Brando. Uh, have Janet on, have have anybody on. Um, and so it's it's an honor to be here because I've listened to you for a long time. And so it's super fun here to be here with you and with Janet. Oh, that's that's so cool. And as I'm watching it and why I, I find myself partial to the Janet story on, uh, on the documentary, because I've had every single person on that documentary as a guest on the podcast. Um, not as in-depth as Chad went with the documentary, so you'll learn more from watching I Want to Rock. But I've had John Karabi, I've had Kip Winger, um, Catherine Turman. I actually used to, I worked with briefly uh, when she worked for the Alice Cooper radio show. I was at the same radio company, so she's great. She's been on the show. And I'm like, the only one I haven't had on is Janet. I'm like, this is, I've thought about it, honestly, reaching out to you. I mean, I'm a fan of Vixen, I'm a fan of that era, of course. And then when Chad does nice, I didn't even have to ask, hey, do you want to get, I can get you Janet. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So just before all that, how this came together, 
just uh, thank you, Chad. Thank you, Janet, to make this kind of happen. So this is cool. This is very cool to have this happen today. Thank you for having me. And don't worry, Janet, I am not going to ask you what it was like being a woman in the 80s. And, oh, come and, and, on. I got, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I've got answers for that. I've practiced for many, many years, and I got great answers. That's what I, I loved because uh, as an interviewer, and I'm pretty, you know, I have in my head what I want to talk about, and sometimes I write notes. Otherwise, I get too boggled down with the notes. But I try not to do an interview that's been done before or ask a boring question they've answered a million times. And, yeah, it's, what's it like being a woman in a male-dominated industry? So I, I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going to go out of my way not to ask you that. <laughs> I am going to ask you um, – because I have somewhat of a tie to the dental industry. My dad was had his own practice up until he passed, so he was a dentist for my entire life. Oh, so you know what it's like. I know. Dental. Everything. Situation. Everything, you know, dental hygiene. I didn't, the dental Ugly. hygienist, like you don't hear that. It's just so fun. It's just something I grew up listening to. I knew all the hygienists, all you know, the, the people that of my dad's, uh, you know, uh, dad's staff, gentle dental care, in on, on Baldwin, uh, Long Island, New York. So just, uh, you're still doing that, right? I know you're making music. We had to talk about that, but you're still a hygienist. Yeah, I do it a few days a week. <laughs> so, how did that? Janet, can I can I ask you really quick? Yes, you're my co-host, so please, you're you ask questions as well. So, so obviously, in in the movie, the movie begins with um, what sounds like the beginning of a huge rock concert. Mm -hmm. A voice saying, "Open up and say ah," and then you cut out of you know the lights and the roar of the crowd and realize you're focusing on a patient in a dental chair, and there's a dental hygienist working on this patient, and that's Janet. I loved it. And we learned that Janet, um, this dental hygienist, used to be the lead singer of this huge rock band, Vixen. And none of her patients know that the dental hygienist working on them is secretly a rock star. So Janet, I have to know, now that this has come out, do your patients know? Do they look at you differently? Because for me, it would be like going to the dentist and finding out that my dental hygienist, this guy named Clark Kent, is actually somebody else underneath the clothes that I always see them in. So do your do your patients know now who you are and how do they react? <laughs> there have been a couple of people. Um, and one of them, oddly enough, did not know that it was me, but said, <laughs> I saw this show um, and it was fantastic. It was about this girl that was like in, in um, a band in the 80s called Vixen. And now she's a dental hygienist. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and I started laughing and then she looks at me and she goes, oh, my God, it's you. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a good one. And I've had people reach out to me like my old patients from Connecticut um, that I knew like casually, like friends of my son's parents, things like that. And um, even they were like, oh my God, I had no idea you were the singer and Vixen this whole time. That's amazing. I just saw you on Paramount. So yeah, it's it's kind of funny people's reaction that had no idea. That, is that that's thrilling? Does it change your relationship with your patients? Is it uncomfortable? Um, no, not really. 
you know, we've talked about it for a couple minutes and then it's back to business. Open your mouth. Let's, <laughs> let's get to work here. Get this done. So, no, I, I mean, it's never been a problem, but, it, you know, it has happened before in the past. Just, you know, I saw one girl that had seen me like about three times and she goes, I've been dying to ask you this, but are you the same Janet Gardner that was in Vixen? Like, yeah, and she's the, she got weird. She was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it this whole time. And I had a feeling it was you, and I knew your name was the same, but I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So, yeah, once in a while people do that, but a lot of times oblivious, no idea. Wow. So what is that like for you? Because for me, because I've been in the radio industry for like 20-plus years, and I've never been able to – you know, completely make a living off that. I always have a side gig because not everyone's Stern or Rogan or whatever, but I I couldn't help it. When I've done my nine to five, it's like I had to let people know that I was in radio also, that I also had this other passion that I was doing. That was just something for me. It was an ego thing. It was more of just like an identity thing. You know, who am I? Did that ever happen? Because you had this entire life and you know extremely successful but now you're this extremely respected dental hygienist is there any part of you that wants to be like hey i'm a singer i want somebody to recognize me or is it just a completely it's a past life you don't even think about it like that well with with patients it's all about them and their life and asking them questions and they want you know to talk about their life and how the kids are doing and Mm -hmm. so and so is in trouble and this person's going off to college and they want that so when the patient's in the chair it's all about them it's not about me at all um the people that i work with of course they all know okay you know the dentist i work for everybody in the office always has known so you know there was never any i i get satisfaction out of taking good care of my parents uh patients i really do i don't I don't need them to know anything, but you know, I'm here for you, for your health, and I'm good at what I do. So I don't, I don't need anything more. I don't need them to know more. J- Janet, so this is, Brando, this is not to put words into Janet's mouth. Um, and so Janet, shut me up if this doesn't feel like you, but I, like, I don't know Janet's, you know, we're not besties or anything. But just through the course of working on this, and as I've watched it a million times, and even watched the footage of Janet that's not in the movie, Janet always strikes me, and I have a very good friend who's like this as well, and I think there are a few people in the world who, and Janet is one of them, who somehow get passion, are so passionate about whatever it is they're doing in the moment. Like if mm. Janet were to suddenly go become a real estate agent or or a doctor or a plumber, she would be the most passionate plumber or doctor or real estate agent on the planet. And Janet always strikes me when I watch her interviews or the times that we've talked as one of these rare people who is passionate about everything and anything they do. And so when, I don't know, when I watch her or listen to her, I feel like this is somebody who is 100% in love with and being passionate and passionate about being a dental hygienist and everything that entails. And it fulfills her in the same way that being a rock star fulfills her in other parts of her life. I feel like now I'm completely trying to put words into Janet's mouth and I don't mean to Janet, but you just, that's always how the few times that we've met, that's how you strike me. 
Well, it's true. I mean, if it's worth doing, it's it's worth putting 100% into it. And so I did that. When I went back to school, I was not screwing around. It was like, hmm. I'm, I'm getting straight A's, and I did. And I'm, you know, if if you're going to do it, you, you may as well do it right. And in my situation, too, I mean, I like people one-on-one. -on -one. That's hmm. my favorite way to interact with people is one-on-one. -on -one. And I get that every day I go to work as a hygienist. And yeah, a lot of it is dental-based stuff, but it's also people stuff. Yeah. You know, people are in a situation where they want to talk to you and they want that hour to be special to them. And so that's what I do. And, and it, it is satisfying. I really enjoy, you know, talking to people about dental things and otherwise. So it's, it's relationships. So I like that. I, that's one of the things I really like about what I do as a hygienist is building relationships with people. Hopefully, though, you're not talking to them. I, I always hate when a dentist uh, does this, when you have stuff in your mouth. So how's the family been? Oh, okay, doctor, it's okay. Like, you just have to nod, and it's like, I can't respond oh. right now. <laughs> no, I try not to ask questions when I'm working in their mouth. <laughs> I'll out, and then I'll ask a question, and then I'll go back to work. Gotcha. Uh, right. I had to do that. But why... um. Why dentistry? Because this is the truth. My dad told me not to be a dentist. He's like, it's he loved being a dentist, but he, uh, it was tough to own your own business. He's just like, don't don't be a dentist. So why dentistry? Why not podiatry or something like that? It's funny because I talk about this. My um, grandfather was a dentist, and he did the same thing. Yeah, he told all of his kids and everybody, don't go into dentistry. Wow, he really didn't like it, hmm. but. You know, my uncles did it anyway. So I've got a lot of dental people and family. And I do have to say that they all have very good lives, mm -hmm. very good work-life balance. They make great money, have plenty of time to spend with family and do other passions that they have. So I thought, you know, I'd been around it my whole life. I can do that. Cool. I, think I, can, I think I can make that work and do a good job and be good at it. So, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, it, it appealed to me because of the people that I knew very well that had great lives in in dentistry. So, that's yeah. Jane, what do you what do you think? I mean, obviously, being a dental hygienist is about as far as you can get from being a rock singer and a rock star. What are the skills or experiences you had as a musician hmm. and a rock star in that life that have helped you in your life as a dental hygienist. How are you a better, better dental hygienist because you are also a rock star? Well, I think like on a, just a relating type of level, um, you know, I've been pretty much everywhere in the world. I've had tons of different experiences and I think it helps that I can relate to people in that way. They're going, oh, you know, we're going to Spain next month. It's like, oh my God, I love Barcelona. So you, you know, there's all these experiences that I have that help me break the ice with patients. So I think it helps me to make them more comfortable with me, just having a nice little conversation before you do something as weird as, you know, go working in someone's mouth. So I, it's definitely helped in that way. And I just, just think um, maybe just confidence in general, just, social skills that you know i was a really shy kid 
I didn't talk a lot. Mm. I didn't, it was, it was hard for me. And getting on stage for me built my confidence. It just made me more outgoing and much more able to relate to people on a different level. So I think that all helped. But as far as like the actual <laughs> knowing anything about teeth, no, it didn't help at all. <laughs> How did you feel when you were approached by, I don't know if it was Chad specific, uh, specifically, but to, to do this documentary and kind of relive that, that era of your life? How did you feel when you were approached with this, um, I want a rock doc? Well, what appealed to me in my initial conversations with Chad and with Tyler was the interest in doing something more in depth than just, you know, there's been so much done about the debauchery and mm-hmm. the sex and drugs and and the excesses of the time period and not a lot about you know really the inner struggles that people went through and still go through uh, just being in the music business in general you know it's a roller coaster ride like nothing you can you can't even describe it but these guys were really determined to you know do something that was on a little different level than that a little more in depth and that appealed to me. I was like, I think people would want to know these stories. That's what I liked you know? about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've known these guys all for many, many years. And I didn't know a lot of the stuff. Okay. I was glued to it when I was watching it. I'm like, oh, my God, that really happened. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Hmm. So, you know, I'm sure other people will be as, you know, taken back by some of the honesty and some of the sincerity in it. Absolutely. Janet, was it, um, you know, Brando, when, when we set out to make the movie, you know, Tyler and I had hours and hours of discussion. We wanted to, we wanted the movie to be very, to feel very personal and intimate. And we, the, the people who are in the movie are in the movie because they all have very unique personal stories that had not been told. Um, Janet, was it, like, while I know you said on one hand you appreciated how much more personal the movie was and how much deeper it went, but what did it feel like when you were in that chair being interviewed? Was it was it hard for you? Because you open up and you talk about your childhood and growing up and and personal things you went through. And Snake Sabo in the movie talks about incredibly painful things mm-hmm. that happened to him as a child. So what was that like for you being in the interview chair and kind of having to open up? Did it feel like you were opening up in ways that you hadn't before that were uncomfortable? Was it hard? Um, most of it was pretty comfortable because Tyler made me really comfortable. He's very good that way. He's a very good human being, you can tell. So I was pretty comfortable most of the time. There were a few times where I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to answer this. Hmm. Um, But very few, for the most part, it's like I'm at the point in my life where looking back on my own life is is very therapeutic. And it's very good. It was good for me because, you know, a lot of things, a lot of painful stuff, you shove it away, you shove it away, you shove it away. You don't think about it. This is me now. This is where I'm at. And I I thought it was very good. I felt sort of a sense of satisfaction afterwards of like, "Ah, got a lot of that off my chest. So it it was, but but I thought it was good. Um, 
And I didn't have anything nearly as intense as like Snake or, or Kip. Hmm. They both had some really serious stuff. And I didn't really have anything that was that painful in my past. So it was, I, it was much easier for me. I, I don't know how they did it, hmm. honestly. Was there a part of your story that you were most eager to tell, to get out there or to clarify? Um, honestly, I, the, the most exciting part for me was for people to know that I'm still doing it, hmm. that Justin and I are still doing it, because a lot of people just don't know. So, I mean, it was an opportunity to do that too, along with, yeah, maybe setting the record straight on a few things that, you know, there's so much misinformation it's nice to have the opportunity for it to come right out of your mouth. This is what really happened. This is what's true. So, yeah, those were a couple good, good things about it. So since you brought it up, I don't need to keep teasing it. Can you talk to me about the new music with uh, Justin James? Uh, it's, it sound, it's, it's everywhere. Spotify, you have uh, YouTube uh, lyric video. I mean... It's 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 great. I mean, Chad was uh, before I even was going to be like, yeah, let's talk about your new music. Chad was telling me how great it was, and he was right. So it you- is great. The new album is fantastic. I thought the last album was fantastic, and I think the new album is amazing. Ah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's great at this point in my life to sort of have the freedom to do, you know, whatever Justin and I want. We have no particular direction or anything. We just go create. And I think it's been such a great evolution from when we first started working together in like, you know, 2017 to now. It's been a fantastic growth opportunity for both of us. And um, we're super proud of what we've been doing. I think we were just talking about a lot of things from life and stuff. And I think I've really been able to tap into some of that lyrically and some of the moments where I felt very empowered in my life and wanting to share that and give that to other people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been great. And uh, we would love for people to know that we, we have new music out. People yeah. all focus on the past so much, but we're still doing it. And the album is called No Strings, which uh, maybe you can tell me the meaning behind that, because it could be No Strings Attached, but it's funny, No Strings, and it's guitar strings, so I mean, it's... Right, there's just several <laughs> ways. The actual song called No Strings is is a love story, I'll be there with no strings. So mm. there's that meaning. And for the album, you know, it shows a puppet with the strings on fire. And for us, the meaning for the album is that nobody's pulling our strings, we're doing whatever we want. So, I mean, that's kind of the two, okay. two different things, but Nothing yeah. to do with string instruments. <laughs> no, no, there's lots of stringed instruments on the um, album. So yeah, that wouldn't be- That, <laughs> that wouldn't make sense, right? <laughs> and that's uh, on Pavement Entertainment and Frontiers Music, right? And that just came out uh, just, just in June. Yeah, month and a half ago, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's still pretty new. Forgive me for not knowing, are you doing dates? Or are, you do, are you guys doing shows? We are. We have, I don't know, a handful of shows between now and the end of the year. And next year, we're just starting to book up for um, usually more of the spring and summer dates for next year. So, yeah, we're out there. 
what's the audiences uh, been like? What's that been like for you to kind of get back out there where, you know, back, it's been a while, but you've played in front of, well, what was the largest crowd you ever played out in, in front of? And I'm sure these are maybe smaller crowds. So, I mean, but you're doing what you yeah, want. Well, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, back not that long ago, 2018, we did um, Grass Pop Metal Meeting in Belgium and there was 150,000 people there. Wow. That's a fairly recent big crowd. Yeah, and that that's true. So Justin and I, it, it can vary. We've done acoustic dates in small venues for maybe 50, 100 people, small. And then we've been on festival dates that are bigger, a mm. few thousand people. It varies depending on, you know, what we get offered and what sounds good to us. Sure. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't, at this point, it doesn't matter. We're doing our music. And there's something so satisfying about that. And plus, another thing I really like about it is we're playing for our fans. A lot of times when you do like fairs and festivals, you're just playing for a bunch of people. They're not necessarily your fans. Mm -hmm. They're music fans. You know, they're everybody's fans. Right. So with Justin and I, a lot of times it's great because everybody in the audience is our fans and they know our songs. And so we can connect with them. And that's the most important thing. It's not the size of the crowd, it's the quality of the crowd. You want people that are wanting to connect with your music. So it's great. I don't, I, yeah, I mean, it's great to get up in front of a massive amount of people, but it's no more satisfying to me than a small group of people that are there to see you. Hmm. Are you putting on the new CD in the dental office as opposed to Kenny G or some classical music? No, I listen to a lot of Yacht Rock. You yeah, know, Yacht Rock. <laughs> Which is good. I like it. It's a lot of, you know, Steely Dan, Doobie Brothers, Fleetwood Mac, Eagles. Yeah. I like all that stuff. So, Me too. So, no, we don't play our music Okay, at all. I'm just teasing. I'm, I'm just curious because, Janet, you obviously have a great story, but, Chad, how did you decide you know, including Janet, who you wanted to have on this documentary. Was there anybody that you had on, like, had planned or wanted to get and you couldn't get um, any anything like that? Because, yeah, there's a lot of interesting characters from that time, but you really picked the right ones for this, at least for this. I don't know if there's going to be a sequel or anything like that, but for this time around, this first one. Yeah, I mean, we wanted, first of all, we wanted to tell the stories that had not been told. Um, and I, I, like I said, I am, I am truly a huge, huge eighties metal fan. Uh, I am first and foremost, an obsessed Van Halen fan. Um, but I read a lot and I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so when Tyler hired me and we started talking about who we wanted, there honestly were a lot of stories that I knew. Um, that I said, you know, what would be great this story or this person I'd heard on a podcast, um, John Karabi's story about finding the, the, his father's footlocker in, in, in his attic. John has this great story about how, you know, his father never really supported him as a musician, or he mm -hmm. felt like his father never supported him as a musician, never cared or wanted him to be in music. And then after his father passed away, this is all in the doc. He finds this footlocker in his dad's attic, just filled with every article, every interview. That every was heavy. Photo, you know, 
ever done. Yeah. And I heard that story and I was like, this would be fantastic. Um, and so I had heard some stories that I would bring to Tyler. There's another producer on the project, Rick Krim, who is a big music guy and knows everybody. And so he would bring us stories. Um, and so the truth is, in a way, like the sad truth is everybody, everybody in who we wanted, we got, but there were some people who we ended up shooting, we shot, who had great stories, who we shot, who then didn't make it into the movie. Okay. Um, who had really phenomenal stories, but for one reason or another, they just ended up on the cutting room floor. A lot of it is you're cutting for time. You know, you only have very limited time when you're doing a project like this. And so we had to pick the people and the stories that just kind of in the end were the felt the truest and the most emotional and the most personal. Um, and, and then there were other stories, honestly, that were fantastic stories, but some of the stories that we're telling obviously happened long ago and we had great stories, but weren't able to find archival footage or supporting materials to help really bring those stories to life in the movie. And so then they get left behind. Um, but, but getting the people we wanted in the movie was, was not the big part. The big part was we had all these amazing people and we had to make really hard decisions about who made it into the final cut. Yeah, that's 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 the difficult part of it, uh, for sure. And you mentioned the archival footage and something uh, I'm curious about. I'm actually looking at a picture of Janet from 1989, just on a TV show with your big hair. So I'm just curious. We all look back, even me. I mean, I look back 20 years or whatever. My hair is in a different spot. It's on my head, not on my face. <laughs> but when you look back, I mean, it, it could be a different question for, for guys. Like I had this question for Stephen Piercy recently. Because you look back at that time and guys look completely different. They're dressed like women. They're dressed. But when you look back, do you be like, wow, I, how did I get all that hairspray in? Or what like, what were we thinking in that decade? Or were you like, wow, I look really good. Like I, I looked, I was I was on point with my, my 80s uh, decorum and uh, attire. So how do you look back at that footage and what Janet, uh, Janet Gardner was like in the 1980s? No, I, I laugh, of course, at myself. You have to be able to laugh at yourself with just the overdone everything. You know, I, I said something in, that made it into the um, into the documentary about, I was holding up a picture and I said, yeah, I look like my closet threw up on me. <laughs> right. Dress, it was just pile it on and pile the makeup on and make the hair huge and, you know, it was what we did. And, and yeah, it's funny. I laugh and I think, yeah, what were we thinking? But it was fun and it was what we, it was cool at the time. It was <laughs> what everybody was doing and, and we had fun with it. I, you know, at this point in my life, I can't imagine going through all of that now. I just, I'm so lazy. I can't, I can't <laughs> I understand how Kiss still does it, you know? Right. Oh, that garb every night, night after night. I can't imagine. How long? So, yeah, I think, I, I, sorry, sorry, Janet. No, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say I, to me, like I, you know, I grew up in that era, listening to and loving that music and idolizing these musicians making that music. And to me, even though we look back now and may laugh a little bit and it seems flamboyant and ridiculous, 
to me, that was one of, not one of, that was the last era where we had real rock stars. These people were larger than life to me. And I think to everybody listening to that music, and they were larger to life in every way. You know, their music was big and loud, but they dressed big and loud. And what followed that with grunge and Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and those are great bands, but those bands put out an image of, we're not larger than life. We're just normal, regular people, which was of course, bullshit because they were making millions of dollars and living rock star lives. But to me, the the dress and the clothes and the attitude of 80s rock was exactly what you want your rock stars to be bigger and better than you are. And you aspire to be them. And the look embodied that as much as the music. Um, and so that's I, I don't know. To, to, to me, we look back and we're like, well, what were they doing? And I'm like, that's what they were doing. They were superheroes. They were on stage being better and bigger and louder than everyone else. And we wanted to be them because of that. Oh, I, yeah. I love there looking was, back. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Janet. There was definitely a lot of that. I mean, you could see it in the videos. They were big and colorful and bombastic and crazy editing. And and it was definitely going for that larger than life thing. And that's what I, I thought was fun about it, was doing all of that, you know, just making the hair bigger and dressing more outrageous and, and doing that rock star stuff. I mean, I totally agree with that. I looked up to that. I mean, as somebody, you know, growing up uh, slightly younger, so I was kind of the end of uh, that era. But I looked at it like these are cool this is cool these are like superheroes these are action figures making great music with great riffs and it's like this is even though grunge was kind of my wheelhouse as far as like high school is concerned i always gravitated towards that 80s metal because there was something different it was something uh i don't like you can't you can't replicate that like ever again it's funny that you say that because i remember one night back you know in the late 80s we went to Benihana's, you know, we're eating and there was a little girl sitting at the same table. She was over on the other side and she goes, mommy, she looked just like my gem doll. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's kind of like, okay, there, there is, there was something that sort of transcended looking normal for sure. Cause she, you know, nailed me down to looking like her gem doll. Truly outrageous. Like rock star. <laughs> you know, girls. So it's like, oh, I nailed it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't think it's just crass commercialism that Kiss and Van Halen and these bands were also literally in comic books. Like they mm -hmm. made comic books in which these people were superheroes. And I don't think that's coincidence or commercialism. And it's like, I love Nirvana and they're a great band, but nobody wants to be Kurt Cobain. You know, everyone wanted to be David Lee Roth and Janet Gardner and Vince Neil and all these guys. That's who you want to be. Yeah, it was, it was, I've had this conversation with friends. It's definitely a, a transition from like the happy, fun party music where you're feeling good about life to depression. <laughs> so I, I understand like you, if you want to be depressed and I've, you know, I've dealt with depression my entire life. That's, you kind of gravitate towards that music. And again, if you want to be Kurt Cobain, hopefully not all the way through. I mean, this I talk, again, mental health, and uh, there's always help out there, but 80s metal, for the most part, even though there were the power ballads, power ballads that made you feel, made you feel all the feels, um, it was just a different era and just a different vibe of, of music. And 
Uh, I want to be sure to include some questions I got from listeners uh, for you, Janet. People were excited to hear uh, from you. You were coming on. This is from uh, Jeff Nirenberg. Um, out of all the bands that you opened for or perhaps played with, like who was your favorite that you uh, ever did a big tour with? Mm, that's a tough one because we opened for some amazing bands. But I have to say Deep Purple was my favorite. Oh, wow. Sure. I stayed every night and watched them. I would take turns. I'd go behind John Lord one night and watch him. Then I'd go to the other side and I'd watch Richard Blackmore. And then I'd, you know, sit behind the drum riser and watch Ian Pace. And Joe Lynn Turner was singing for them at the time, who was one of my all-time favorite singers. So that was probably the most exciting. And I couldn't wait to talk to them. They're all amazing, not only amazing musicians, but really interesting cool people so it was great to kind of get to know them and watch them play every night i don't think i missed a night and that's rare usually you know once in a while you're like tired i'm not going to stay and watch tonight i'm going to go back to the hotel and sleep i just couldn't stop watching them i'd go to the soundboard for a while i was all over the place and it was just amazing it was one of those childhood dreams that you would never imagine it's like i actually know the guys in deep purple what <laughs> who gets to do that who gets to do that you so that was <laughs> oh i love that uh another question i got from douglas haas well i'm not going to ask his first question which is uh, how is it living on the edge of a broken heart so i'm not going to ask that question Okay, thank you. Um, he wants to know about your musical influences uh, growing up. Um, I had four older brothers, so we had all kinds of music. They all had different tastes. So anything from the Beatles, Elton John. One of my brothers was into kind of bluegrass, and he had a lot of like female artists like Emmylou Harris and Bonnie Raitt. So some of that got inside me my mom was a big fan of aretha franklin okay and she had an oh this is really gonna date me but she had an eight track tape and so we had an eight track player in the basement so i remember putting that on and you know you could only go through the programs and i had my favorite songs i knew exactly kachunk it would go to my favorites so i would listen to that for hours and you know huge fan of hers um, she also liked um, Etta James. And there's that one song everybody knows her for at last. Mm. But she did so much where she was rocking. Man, she was just incredible. So I kind of went back and listened to a lot of that. And then, of course, Janis Joplin came along. And then Hart, of course, was huge influence. Um, and then Pat Benatar, Pretenders, Chrissy Hine all those women sort of definitely helped me to feel empowered like if they can do it so can i mm. exactly. they were never like the victimy types they were powerful and forceful absolutely absolutely and I'm, i finally am getting to see chrissy hind and the pretenders open up for guns and roses uh in in a few days so I'm excited to see that legend. And you mentioned Etta James. This also ties into my theme, if you are catching on to my segues. She did a cover of Welcome to the Jungle back in 2011. Etta James. I don't know if everyone knows that. 
Like it's, I didn't know that. I have to go look at that. Yeah, it was on her album, uh, The Dreamer. And it's, I don't know, if you it's, you can't describe it. You have to go listen to it. Etta James doing Welcome to the Jungle. Because uh, no matter what, after all these years, whatever, that attitude will never go away. Right. Just. She owned it. Yeah, big time. So uh, with that, you know, Appetite for Distortion, Guns N' Roses theme. You know, everyone and their mother has a podcast, but I like to do it a little bit different. Uh, how, did you know any of the, did you meet any of the GNR guys throughout your career? Or And, and the generic question I, I ask, and just curious of where you were when Appetite came out. Because you were amongst the, you were different, cause I, and I hate to use it now, but because you were an all-female band. But there was just all the, the copycat bands of that era. And then, as stories go, Guns N' Roses came out and changed a lot of that. So was that your perspective as well, that they were different than the other, uh, quote, hair metal bands of the, that era? When I heard Welcome to the Jungle, I was like, wow. The, the cool thing to me was that it went back. It had like an Aerosmith kind of vibe, like an earlier Aerosmith kind of vibe. Um. But it then it also had a newness to it, you know, the attitude and, you know, Axel's voice was really unique. Um, so, yeah, I was pretty blown away by that song in particular. And then the whole album, obviously, I started listening to that. It was amazing. So, yeah, I mean, it was like I definitely had a feeling these guys are here and they're going to be here for a long time because <laughs> they had that. They had that it that you can't put your finger on, but it's special, it's unique, and it's cool. So I remember that. And yes, I did meet Slash. Um, we were opening for Ozzy at Irvine Meadows, and he was backstage, and he came into our dressing room and hung out for a while. Super cool. Awesome, you know, didn't very humble didn't seem to have any kind of rock star attitude like hey i'm here i'm slash it was not like that at all just you know hanging out nice as could be so that that was cool that made me respect him big time was that he's just he's just a person who happens to be a really talented guitarist mm. you know in a huge band but no attitude at all and vocally i know you touched on it just a little bit but uh, what did you think of Axel? Was he that different? Because again, you, you, another famous '80s metal documentary, and I've had on the director Penelope Spheris, the um, the kind of Western <laughs> Civilization Part Two. I mean, because that era was being, you know, it's it's heartbreaking for us fans to watch that because we love that era, but then it was becoming silly and oversaturated. But then again, you have Axel come out with his different voice, I guess vocally as a you know, as a, as a singer, did, was he that different? They were that different that you didn't think that they were part of the whole movement, that they were something slightly different? And you know what I'm trying to say? I did. I mean, I thought that it, it was definitely a bridge because at the time, Axel did have his hair teased right. up. You know, they didn't, they didn't have flashy clothes on. They were a little grimier, a little grittier. But they still had that rock star larger than life thing for sure, you know, and Slash with his vibe was totally unique. Obviously, you didn't see guys like that in rock bands really ever, 
you know, he had like a totally cool look and his style of playing, that rootsy kind of aggressive. I mean, I compare him to Joe Perry a little bit here and there, but he also had, every member of that band had a really cool vibe, their own style and talent, and it combined magically. It was magical, magical to me. You know, what was brought up in the documentary, uh, Chad, that I never thought about before, and I'm sure it's a, a question, Janet, you get all the time about grunge coming in. Did that, did that kill that, that era? But there was that other G that I never thought about that was mentioned in the doc, and that's uh, um, Garth Brooks. I, I never even put that together thinking about how big he was at the time. Uh, I guess, Janet, what's, what were your thoughts? Did you think, you know, what a lot of people say, a grunge killed hair metal, or was it just kind of the natural progression of things? Did Garth Brooks ki- kill hair metal? What was your perspective? Well, I think that, you know, the first thing that happened, obviously, was, yeah, the Nirvana thing and the music business, MTV, all of, they switched over to that and stopped playing what we do. So that was the first step. And yeah, I do think that grunge had something to do with that. Yes, it was oversaturated. Yes, people wanted something new and different. And that was it. I think what happened with the whole country thing and the Garth Brooks thing is a lot of displaced fans who didn't necessarily like grunge or didn't want to go to those kind of shows that were kind of dark and they wanted to still go to fun party type shows. Well, where are they going to go? They're going to go see Garth Brooks. Mm. You know, it's, I think a lot of displaced fans sort of found country and landed in that, you know. I mean, that's what my take is. I could be completely wrong. Who knows exactly, you know, what happened. But that's that's what I think. I think a lot of people who would have gone to our shows and would have listened to our music started going to country shows because they got the same thing it was fun it was you know a party atmosphere i agree with that what about you chad i think that's right i mean i think as i'm saying this i'm like oh my gosh there's a there's a whole other documentary or a book in this (laughs) i think 1991 and 1992 are really interesting years to look at because first of all i think everything janet said is exactly right you know that that grunge came in and it was a a darker a darker less joyful music um and and garth brooks took over not not only just with music that still felt fun but it had it did have a little bit of rock and roll attitude i mean his first song was or his first big hit was friends in low places which is basically a bit, big middle finger to the man right um yeah he talks about her new boyfriend is in his ivory tower or whatever and um and I mean, you know, he had he had pyro and things in his country concerts that nobody had ever seen before, and he's swinging around on ropes. Um, but I I think it's also, and we don't really talk about this in the movie. Ninety one, ninety two is also when MTV stopped playing music and completely switched their programming, and it's when the real world comes mm. out, and it's the advent of reality television on MTV, uh-huh. and all of that is replacing music videos. And I also don't think it's any coincidence that at the exact same time that Nirvana comes out and Nirvana, by the way, wasn't even really the first grunge band to have a hit. Alice in Chains was on the radio like six months before Nirvana. 
but at the same time that Nirvana, which was really like the watershed moment that comes out, is the same time that um, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, that Quentin Tarantino comes on the scene. And that was a whole new type of movie and storytelling that felt darker and grittier. And I, so I don't think it's just, oh, pointing to grunge and pointing to Garth Brooks. I feel like there was this whole cultural sea change hmm. in which alternative people, subcultures, people who had been overlooked and felt like nobody was speaking to them musically, culturally, artistically, suddenly rise up and become validated and and find that their culture and their art and their music and their storytelling is 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 now accepted and their this community that had been overlooked before is now the mainstream. Another great point. So, is there going to be another uh, doc? I want the uh, oh. I want to rock two electric boogaloo. Is that coming out? <laughs> I, I have no idea. I mean, to be honest, um, I mean, I would I would love, 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 and kill, kill, kill to make more. Um, but those decisions are they're not mine. They're not Tyler's. You know, that comes from you know the people you know at the network at Paramount Plus, um, and I, they are so above my pay grade. I have no <laughs> idea, but. Oh my! If I ever had a chance to make more, I would drop whatever whatever I was doing and run to do it. Okay. Well, keep your index cards on the wall. Don't drop anything just yet. <laughs> uh, anything else that you're working on, though, Chad? In the meantime. Well, unfortunately, uh, the writers in Hollywood are on strike right now. Yeah. Okay. So no. I'm sorry. So so what are you doing then to kill time? Are you just going back and listening to Vixen uh, records? What are you going, what are you doing? I, I get to listen to a lot of music. I get to find some new music. I'm on the picket lines every day. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, hope today actually is the first day supposedly that the writers and the studios will be talking again. Um, you know, for the last three months, the studios have refused to talk to the writers or even negotiate. Um, so today they're finally supposed to sit back down and I think people are watching with crossed fingers, but nobody's holding their breath that anything is going to happen quickly or immediately. Um, but hopefully it'll be over soon. Hopefully. I mean, you see some of those residual checks that these famous actors are posting and it's just like, holy crap. Like you got nothing and you guys know the studios are just making bank off that and so yeah i'm 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 not there physically but i'm with you guys on the uh on the picket line thank you uh and and, and janet uh, i wanted to ask because we were talking about the message of that whole era is there a message that you want to get out with uh the new music is there a main you know is there a certain subject uh, that you're trying to uh, topics that you want to put lyrically into the music you're making with justin james well, you know, every album we we do a few different things. You know, as a female, I always got to do my girl power stuff. You know, <laughs> empower yourself. Um, so there's a, always a lot of those, and there are on this this current album. We always do at least one or two just stupid fun, just stupid fun songs. There's a couple of those on this one too, where it's just. Don't think about anything. Get in the car, turn it up really loud, and and drive. Hmm. So a few of those and a couple of, you know, love songs. And we always try to make things next level every time we, we go out. And I think we've done it this time. Justin worked really hard on the sonic aspects of this album, and I think he nailed it. Sounds better than any of our other albums. Um, yeah, we're really excited about it. Super proud. So check it out. 
What's Janet, that? can I ask you a weird personal question? Sure. <laughs> so I, I, I always feel like obviously the best writing, whether it's playwriting or screenwriting or a novel or songwriting is, is like the most honest personal thing you can write. And sometimes that means, you know, you're writing about anger or frustrations in your personal life for your relationships that you can't say in any other, in any other way. Um, and that you wouldn't eat share even with the person closest to you. So what is it like being songwriting partners with the person closest to you? Like, do, do you do you find that sometimes you can't write the songs you write, you would wanna say, you would wanna write or say the things you would wanna say because you're having to say them to your husband or does it serve as like a therapy room for the two of you? What is it like being songwriting partners with your husband? Well, it, that's a really interesting point. You always come up with good stuff, Chad. Um, because yeah, it is kind of awkward because a lot of things you pull from your past and even as good as we know each other, there's still stuff we don't know about each other. You never totally know everything. So yeah, once in a while, something will pop out and he'll be like, what's that about? Huh. It'll be like, oh no, I gotta dig up something, you know, explain something out of my past and vice versa. So yeah, it is weird and it is hard, but yes, it does serve to bring us closer together because we're telling stories and we're getting to know each other better every time we sit down or write a song. So it's, it's good and it can be scary and difficult because it's like ooh, you know I, I really don't want to tell him about this <laughs> but you know you, you, he's my husband we have to share everything so it works out in the end but yeah it has been strange and you know you can't help when somebody comes up with a line or something going well is that about me mm. are you mad at me for something <laughs> I think about that. I have two songs from your last album. So I run a lot. And on my running playlist, I have Wounded and Running to Her. Uh -huh. And every time those songs come out, I'm like, oh, my God, she's singing this and writing this with her. Like, where did these songs come from? Like, how strange <laughs> is this for her to do these songs with him? Yeah, it, it is weird. But, you know, we both understand that we both have a past. So, you know, we, we both have stories from the past that we haven't shared and so yeah those songs too that you mentioned actually are from past relationships you know and they're still like wounded i mean once you're hurt you're different forever in my opinion you are you know you lose trust that's how old people get so bitter hmm. because because of just being damaged after life you know, and it's hard not to be that, but I think that sharing music helps with that. You can kind of let it go a little bit. And Justin and I both understand that. The, the therapeutic benefits of writing together. Because not only is it we learn more about each other, but we're unconditional support for whatever we're trying to release in any particular song. Yeah, it's great. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. And is, is the best, where's the best way, I guess, to keep up to date with future dates or uh, future music uh, for you? I, I know you guys are on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, Janet Gardner uh, of one. Um, any well, website, Instagram, any of that fun stuff? Facebook and Instagram, just go to Gardner James. You can look 
you know, Google Janet Gardner and you'll see a lot of stuff. Um, JanetGardnerMusic.com, we have all our dates listed. So if you want to come see us play, we're there. Spotify, Gardner James, Janet Gardner, um, we're everywhere. I love it. Yeah, just look us up and you'll find us. Cool. YouTube, Gardner James. Great. No, that's great. Uh, Janet Gardner, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and just spending some time. And now I can say thanks to Chad, who you were an excellent co-host. Everybody on the I Wanna Rock documentary has also been an appetite for distortion. So that's that's pretty cool. But I don't go as in-depth as you do. You know, I don't have all the visuals you do. So go to the documentary first, and then listen to the podcast for some extra uh, extra tidbits. So thank you, Chad, as well, for helping me set this all up. Uh, honestly, Brenda, thank you for doing it. Like I said, it's it's just exciting. It's like a thrill to be on here because I've listened to you for so long. And thank you for, for, for doing this and, and spreading the word about the documentary. Yeah, so if anyone hasn't seen it yet, I want to rock. Um, I always forget the, the, the tagline, the 80s metal dream. The, yeah, I, I remember the 80s metal dream. And I am spreading it because... I mean, for one, it had Guns N' Roses in there, and yeah, that's my 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 thing. I got to talk GNR, but just to support all these cool people, like as I mentioned, Catherine Turman, and you know, getting to know Janet, super cool. And I do want to mention this because it's just funny. Kip Winger is a nice guy, but he got like, I don't know. Every interview he does, he ends up talking about the Metallica video and Beavis and Butthead, and for whatever reason, we talked about it during the interview, and he was fine. But then all the clickbait and articles that came out after, he like thought like I set him up or something. And it's like everyone else asked these questions. I felt like bad. He was just like, I don't know. It was it was an awkward situation, but I we, we handled it well off the air. But at first I'm like, everyone asks you about Lars and, and Metallica. Don't you have to get mad at me for asking the same question. Sorry. All right. I figured I'd yeah, end the, the, I'm sure he's he's tired of talking about it. You know, I, I don't blame him, but yeah, I mean, what do you, what are you supposed to do? That's, you know. Oh, he was, I even said like, uh, you, you can always say pass or like give a very short answer. You know, you don't have to go dig deep. Like everyone asks you about what it was like being a woman in the, uh, in the eighties. And he was fine during the interview. It was the after the fact when all these clickbait articles come out that make it seem like what he talked about worse. And sometimes they end up blaming you. So I don't know if you, it's different, I guess, with the documentary than a podcast because they just take that little excerpt and they blow it up. And then, I don't know, they go back to the interviewer. It's like, no, I asked you if these questions were okay. Everything was okay. So I just thought it was funny going into yeah, depth. I mean, we, don't, we, we don't control what, what people focus on and what their little clickbait headlines, uh, headlines are going to be. I can't control that. No, that's what they do. So, it, you know, I, Justin gets more upset than I do about that stuff because I'm just like, well, we can't control that. So just move on. Let's move on. Um, because, yeah, you, you spend a lot of time talking about things that you want to talk about. And then they'll take some little tiny thing and blow it up into this big clickbait thing that makes you look like you have no dimension at all. Right. What are you going to do? You can't you can't change it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's fine. Oh, yeah, sure he doesn't even remember, but it's just one of those, every time I see him interviewed, he's asked the same thing, and I'm like, jeez, you know, uh, and I had my moment, so that's why I just thought it was interesting, and that's why I went out of my way not to ask you about, 
you know. And I loved how you addressed that in the documentary. Because every woman that I've interviewed, I don't want to ask that same question. Maybe we've all been asked that same question. That's probably annoying at this point. It is annoying. An- right. And at this point, too, I mean, my our daughter went to Lollapalooza, so we watched some of it on Hulu. It was so awesome to see all of the female yeah. great musicians. I was just blown away. So, yeah, I'm thank God. Now, I, I'm hoping they never have to hear that. A different world now, thankfully. You know? Hmm. So things have gotten better, and I love that. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Agreed. Uh, Chad, any final thoughts before we wrap up? You look like you're in full contemplation mode. (laughs) Honestly, it's been fun for me just – I mean, I've chimed in a little bit here and there, obviously, but it's been fun for me just to sit back and watch you guys chat and to hear Janet's answers to everything, and it makes me – mismaking when the documentary came out i'll be honest i was excited and i was also so sad because i was like now it's out there people will see it but it's also over because making this movie this doc and it's three parts so making the show has honestly been the absolute most favorite thing i have ever worked on Mm. and even though it's not my story it felt like i was telling it's the most personal thing I've ever done because this is the music that I've loved and listened to. And it just, I, it, I'm so proud of it. And I'm also so sad that it's over. Well, I can tell you this, Chad, because this podcast will continue. Well, I will continue to interview 80s people. And, you know, I interview from all decades. But if you ever want to come back on as a co-host to kind of kind of relive and you know, reignite that passion, you are more than welcome to come back on. And Janet, I also hope we get to do this again. I don't know if you have a certain brand of uh, a fluoride or floss out there yet, but if you ever do any, uh, you know, de- any products to promote, you'll be the first one I call. Sounds good. <laughs> Janet Gardner, uh, whitening strips, anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, now you've got my brain going. Woo! I'll let you know. I'll give you a cut. Oh, perfect. I love that. So that does it for this episode of Appetite for Distortion. When will you see the next one? Well, in the words of Axl Rose concerning Chinese democracy, I don't know if soon is the word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.